0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 150, Conquering Hero. And to the safer waters than recent episodes, I wipe my brow with relief. Last time that we were sailing in those calmer waters, we'd just finished the Battle of Agincourt. But before I move on, Mike wrote in to say that i have completely misunderstood the meaning of an inflected language, mea culpa. Basically, It doesn't, in this context, mean the way the language was spoken, but having a lot of endings to denote a word's grammatical role. For Mike's explanation, hop along to the episode on the website and see where I got it wrong. Return of the Victor of Agincourt Now, I'm trying a new experiment, breaking up the presentation with subheads and musical breaks between topics could be great, could be incredibly irritating. Let me know what you think. Now, as it happened, on the 25th of October 1415, while the English contemplated the prospects of battle against seemingly overwhelmingly French odds, a rumour had started in London. The King had fought a great battle, and the King had lost. So when Henry arrived back in London on the 23rd of November 1415 as a conquering hero, the celebration was all the more extreme for the relief. I mean seriously, the good burghers of London really pushed the boat out. The roads were packed with people. When he arrived at Tower Bridge, Henry was greeted by the sight of a vast figure with an axe in his right hand and the keys of the city in his left. As he went on, he came across a a cloud of boys representing the angelic host, with faces gleaming with gilt paint. Then the tower in Cornhill was covered with a purple cloth. At St Paul's, high above the king, all the niches were occupied by young girls in the posture of a statue, which I doubt would pass your elfin safety legislation these days, lightly puffing gold leaf onto the king's head below. I could go on, but seriously, just take my word for it, those Londoners knew how to throw a party. In the middle of all of this was the King himself. Here's a quote. But the King himself went along dressed in a purple robe, not with a haughty look and a pompous train, but with a serious countenance and a reverend pace, accompanied by only a few of his faithful servants. Following him, guarded by knights, were the captive dukes, counts and the marshal. From his sober face, it could be inferred that the king, silently contemplating, was giving thanks and glory to God alone and not to man. Of course, it could have been that the king was contemplating putting a few quid on the nose at the 440 at Epsom Downs, but assuming that the chronicler's right, your attitude to this will be guided, I suspect, by your attitude to the man himself. On the one hand, great, not getting carried away by vain glory. On the other hand, come on Henry, show a bit of humanity, wave to the crowd, let God take a back seat just for a couple of hours. Henry arrived back to a nation that was completely won over and at his feet. The Chancellor, Bishop of Winchester and uncle, Henry Beaufort, had helped Parliament realise that they were so blown away that Henry could have all the custom dues of England for his life. And a tax of 1 15th to boot, no questions asked, Gov. Victor is at sea. This was a good thing, as it happens, for back in France, despite the agony and recrimination, the French were quite rightly all for revenge. There were plenty of resources available, there was plenty of determination and will to make les roasts pay for their nerve in kicking the greatest nation in Christendom in the shins. At Rouen, the Grand Duke of Berry still had substantial forces that never made it to the Battle of Agincourt. Now it was time for the Armagnac to step up and show the world what France could do. Bernard the Seventh, Count of Armagnac, was therefore made constable of France. The death of the Dauphin Louis had a strangely positive impact, in that the new heir, Jean was in the hands of the Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless. So instead of continuing his aggressive advance on Paris, Duke Jean decided to hang back and wait on events. And meanwhile, the position of the English in Harfleur was looking distinctly dicey. Henry Beaufort's brother Thomas, the Earl of Dorset, had of course been left behind when Henry left for Agincourt with a pile of rubble and some soldiers. As the French approached, the English could no longer raid the surrounding areas for food. And although by June 1416 the walls of Harfleur had been rebuilt, it was already looking at the immediate prospect of an involuntary slimming diet for its citizens. Because on land sat a French army, and at sea sat a French navy. In the final words of the Book of Mazaboul, we cannot get out, they are coming. And if you can recognize that ultimately nerdy quote, post on my Facebook page and, well, I'll be impressed. You won't get a prize, but I'll be impressed. Nowadays, we think of England's reasonably glorious naval history, but twas not ever thus. Henry turned to his brother, the Duke of Bedford, tried to ignore his appalling haircut and gave him the job of saving half Bedford scraped together a navy and set off, facing a navy with eight major ships, otherwise known those days as carracks against his own three major ships. The Genoese ships were taller than the English ships, a major disadvantage in what was effectively a land battle on water. But the result was a complete and comprehensive victory for the English, much against the clever money. The way into Harfleur was now open and supplies could flow. On the other side of the town, the French army dispirited melted away. By the way, next week, Brandon Hubner is doing us an episode on Henry V and the English fleet, so something to look forward to. An alliance with the empire. To this military success in 1416, Henry added a diplomatic success in the form of Emperor Sigismund. Sigismund is a rather fascinating, conflicting and colourful character, and I would guess he was rarely bored. He was at once a fine jouster and fighter, and an erudite, well-learned man with noble ambitions. And on the other hand, he was an enthusiastic womaniser and savagely cruel when the opportunity presented itself. He had escaped alive from the disaster at the hands of the Ottomans at Nicopolis in 1396, and was deeply keen to make sure Christendom had a united face against the challenge of the Turk. He faced the Hussite rebellion and heresy in his lands in Bohemia and was determined to rub that out. He'd convened the Council of Constance to reform the papacy and again bring Christendom back together from the papal schism. And so he arrived in England looking for help to resolve this hideous division in Christian society, a schism which served his purpose not one whit. For four months, the two leaders... Henry and Sigismund danced the diplomatic dance. At first, Sigismund tried to bring the English and French together, proposing a peace conference at Calais. The French refused with some contempt. And so the Emperor decided that his only route to getting help at the Council and help against the Hussite heretics was to go for the full-fat offensive alliance with England. Which is what, in August 1416, was duly agreed for Henry, it was a diplomatic triumph of the first order, and all the better for being slightly unexpected. In fact, in September, there was in the end a conference at Calais, which did involve all parties Armagnac, Burgundy, Emperor, England. But Henry's price was the full instatement of Edward III's Treaty of Bretigny, and that was no more acceptable to France than it had ever been. So the result was effectively the chance of Henry to stitch up the Gundins. The path forward for Henry by late 1416 was clear. Agincourt hadn't ended the war. It had opened it. The invasion of France 1417. A new strategy. Meanwhile on the home front, there's nothing like a bitter success to bring people together. In the north, the Percy family was finally rehabilitated. The Earl of March So recently, a potential rival claimant to the throne was appointed to lead the defence of England in the king's absence. And the Holland family were reinstated as earls of Exeter and of Huntingdon. And in October, Holland won another great naval victory in the Channel that freed the road for invasion of France. And so in 1417, in July, Henry arrived again in France, together with his brothers Clarence, Bedford and Gloucester. At his side were 12,000 fighting men, again heavily unbiased in favour of archers. But it was the cloud of other hangers-on that came with the army that were really significant. There were miners, masons, farriers, carpenters, gunners. Because there was now a new strategy, and it was a strategy of conquest. This is important and quite new. The English strategy since the glory days of 1346 had always been one of chevorsay, burn and pillage, bring the French to the negotiating table by demonstrating their unfitness and inability to rule, force them to cough up by economic and moral punishment. But Henry was taking a new approach, to have and to hold, to capture the castle, towns and people and make them his own. And not only this, but maybe to become king of France. Vraiment, incroyable, mais vrai This required a new approach. It would be a little difficult to win the hearts and minds of the people he planned to rule while eating their chickens and burning their barns, so Chevalier was out. Furthermore, Henry needed a new military strategy. Normandy was a tiny wee part of the whole job of capturing France. It was just one of the many pimples on the national French buttock. But it was an essential first step, and the French would fight them all the way. And now the aim was, in the words of Paramore, to capture the castle, and it would take much more time, wall battering and all that sort of thing. So the plan was this, to create a screen of fortresses as quickly as possible through central Normandy. Behind that, to then consolidate the conquest of Lower Normandy, protected by that screen of castles. And from there to expand, to Rouen to the north, to Anjou to the south, and thence to Paris, and Gaulois, and the reeve Gauche, and all that jazz. If Agincourt owed quite a lot to luck, Henry can now be judged by his strategy. It was bold and it was daring, but would it work? Henry landed at Tuke in July 1416, just south of Harfleur. All of this means, gentle listeners, that we will have occasion once again to refer to maps of Normandy on the site... Remember the happy days of the Angevins and all that? Good times. Good times. Hie thee, therefore, to the History of England website. The Butcher of Caen and the Conquest of Lower Normandy. In Henry's armoury were big guns for the walls he would face. Big guns much improved by longer barrels, improved muzzle velocities and the benefits of corning gunpowder, i.e., mixing the ingredients up when wet, thereby improving its fineness and its power. The first objective was Caen, the historic capital of Lower Normandy, Billy the Conks HQ, the scene of so much bloodshed under Edward III. Caen was pivotal. If it fell, many other towns around would capitulate to boot, and it would split the French from the rest of Lower Normandy as planned the Duke of Clarence was given the job of taking a town that had been given a substantial makeover since Edward III's day with new, seven-foot-thick walls with 32 towers and deep-water ditches. By the 17th of August, the town was invested and the English engines of war were deployed, which, as a monk reported, threw enormous stones with a noise like thunder amid fearsome clouds of black smoke so that one might have thought they were being vomited forth by hell. The citizens of Caen fought tooth and nail. On the 4th of September, the English went for a final assault, and things got really nasty. At the first assault, the citizens fought back with crossbow bolts, quicklime, boiling pitch, everything they had, and the English fled from the walls. One night... Edmund Springhouse fell from the scaling ladder in full armour and lay helpless outside the walls, unable to move. And so the French piled up bales of burning straw around him, set light to them despite his desperate pleas, and roasted him alive in his metal tomb. Enraged, Henry, Clarence and Warwick led a second assault, but again they were repulsed. But Henry would not be denied, and at the third assault... Caen could no longer resist and the English swept into the town. And Caen was drowned in blood. Caen had not surrendered. And so here we go again, Deuteronomy 20, verses 12 to 14. If it does not make peace with you but offers battle, you shall besiege it, and the Lord your God will deliver it into your hands. And you shall put all its males to the sword, but you may take the women and the dependents, and the cattle for yourselves, and plunder everything else in the city. This is exactly what happened, as it had 50 years ago. Henry, Warwick and Clarence's columns of blooded knights and archers finally met in the centre of Caen, but all around, chaos still raged. But Henry ordered 2,000 males over the age of 12, herded into the marketplace, and there the helpless men and adolescents were butchered to a man, and resistance was at an end. An outraged Italian chronicler, Morosini, wrote, No one had ever heard of such an infamy being committed. Just like the killing of prisoners at Agincourt, Henry has been held to account for this butchery. I am personally torn, ladies and gents. This is, after all, not a new debate. This is not specific to just Henry. And I think the answer, in many ways, is the same. There's no doubt Henry committed a hideous and brutal act. There's equally no doubt that Morosini was wrong. Henry acted as many others had and would act, and according to the accepted rules of war. Hated or loathed, his actions opened the gates of many other Norman towns without bloodshed as a result. But you have to put all that aside, really, probably. It was an act of hideous, callous brutality. So as we've said, Henry was not interested in a sprightly summer chevorsay followed by a relaxing winter, huddling round a hot fire with a warm cup of cocoa and a good book. This war went on deep into winter. His brother Humph, Duke of Gloucester, could already record successes at Bayeux. Meanwhile, Henry moved south, taking Argentin, Verneuil and Sayez. By October, Alençon had fallen, threatening men and Anjou to the south, and Brittany. In terror, the Duke of Brittany sued for a truce and so Henry had removed one enemy from his flank. Although Henry did his best to reassure the locals that they could stay if they accepted him as their lord, that he would look after them as his own, and although his policy was to minimise the damage of war rather than maximise it, as he would have done through a chevorsay, there is no doubt of the intensity of the war. His army brought, in the words of a French observer, Fire and blood, and made everything fall to them by force of arms, by menace and by terror. Despite their earlier resolve, the Armagnac opposition was feeble. John the Fearless was hanging around in a menacing kind of way, and the deep divisions in French leadership stripped them of any practical opposition. By December, Henry was outside Falaise, a massive Norman fortress that took until February to reduce. But its fall continued the Norman towns and castles that submitted to Henry's lordship, until by spring 1418, Lower Normandy, or broadly the coastal regions of Normandy, were under his command. And that left Upper Normandy, and more specifically, the capital of Normandy and one of the greatest cities of France, Rouen. With Rouen in his control, Paris would be within spitting distance. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As Henry prepared militarily, he also began the process of government. And it's here we see greatest evidence of the difference between this war and Edward's. Henry was here to stay. Normandy was divided into four administrative regions. While each region was led by an Englishman, the post of Vicomte that lay beneath that role was dominated by the local Norman nobility. Equally, there was no mass transfer of land from Norman to English lords. There were some plantations of English lords in specific places, but by and large, this is not 1066 in reverse. And there were the crowd-pleasers, the reduction in the hated gabelle, or salt tax, the tight control from pillaging of the army and protection of church property. The next result would be cautious acceptance and collaboration by the Norman nobility, more enthusiastic acceptance by the French clergy, although only the Bishop of Sayers stayed out of the five French bishops of the region. The Siege of Rouen Meanwhile the French imploded. The Queen Isabeau had been expelled from Paris by the Armagnac and John the Fearless exploited the situation by setting her up as regent of an alternative government. Then he exploited the Paris mob to such great effect that Count Armagnac was removed from power and later dragged from his cell and brutally murdered his naked, mutilated body left lying in the streets, while Paris went through a convulsion of civil chaos and murder. By July 1418... John, the Duke of Burgundy, was in Paris at the head of the government, with mad King Charles and the Queen by his side. The Dauphin, now the last Dauphin option available, Charles, after the death of Jean, to add to the death of Louis, Charles was at the head of an alternative government with the Armagnac at Poitiers. All of this chaos had two consequences. Mainly any central French resistance was now impossible. But secondly, the English Burgundian relationship was complicated by the fact that it was the Burgundian forces that now held Rouen. Nonetheless, Henry pressed on into Upper Normandy, taking the towns of Lisieux, Bernay, Le Nubert, and Louviers, while Brother Clarence took Pont de l'Arche. And when the good citizens of Rouen woke up on the morning of the 1st of June, 1418, they saw the English army almost completely surrounding them as though Sauron had opened the gates of Barad-dûr. But the city's fettle was in pretty good shape. Rouen was massive by the standards of the day, 70,000 people, far bigger, far richer than London. And there were 5,000 soldiers and a further 15,000 militia guarding the massive walls and towers. It was well stocked with food and water, and given there been good warning of the attack, it was confident it could not be completely cut off, because of the river that ran through it. Plus, they'd been told by the Duke of Burgundy they would not be abandoned. So, as I say, they were pretty fettled up, and their level of fettle would have a direct impact on the way the fight was conducted. But their first shock came with the river. Henry had ships hauled overland onto the River Seine east of Rouen, and then put three massive chains across the river. Downstream, Henry's pal, the King of Portugal, had provided ships to cut Rouen off from Lower Normandy. And so, contrary to Rouen's expectations, it was now cut off and could be starved. The siege of Rouen was long, and the siege of Rouen was brutal. Henry maintained as well as he could the strict rules and control over his men, but the chivalric veneer was quickly stripped away. Several gibbets were constructed along the English lines, where the English hung captives. In return, the French hung victims from the walls, with dogs hung around their necks, or threw captives into the Seine wrapped in sacks. The French vicar-general of Rouen excommunicated Henry from the walls, which may not seem like the worst thing to us, but Henry, being Henry, was livid. By October, famine stalked the streets and those normal stories emerged from inside the walls. Dogs and rats commanded massive high prices. Young girls sold themselves for a slice of bran-brack. Parents and children hid food from each other to survive. The worst came when, in desperation, the captain of Rouen expelled 12,000 non-combatants, the weak, the old and the feeble. Predictably, if callously, Henry refused to allow them to pass between his lines, standard practice, just like Edward at Calais. The besieger in these circumstances had no obligation to live with the defender's gambit to eke out his supplies for longer. And so there they sat, under the walls in the rain and cold and misery, all the most vulnerable people of Rouen. Despite the monster tag, Henry in fact seems to have been less heartless than Edward had been, allowing some sustenance to reach them, because by Christmas they were still there. As indeed they were after Christmas. Henry was, outwardly at least, not a man for self-doubt, not a man for seeing both sides of the argument. So his view to Rouen was, "'You yourself have sowed the seed of so many miseries amongst you. "'You be the occasion of your famine, and through your obstinate pride.'" In January 1419, after seven long months of siege, Rouen was desperate. No relieving army was on the horizon, and after a wait that long, it would have taken a man with a serious gambling problem to take any odds on one appearing. But they were tough, these Rouenese. After all, they'd thrown their own flesh and blood out onto no man's land and watched them suffer through the winter. And so they went for a big, final mass sortie designed to take the English by surprise and scatter them, and at least give them a bid for freedom. And so sorty they did, but all to no avail, and that was finally that. They could go on no longer, and on January the 18th they finally surrendered the keys of the city to the conquering hero. Now, Henry was not a man to hold a grudge, for more than 40 years or so. His response to the city did actually fall into the harsh but fair category. There was a big fine the city had to pay, but as long as they took that on, the good burghers could keep their livelihood and status. The administration would now be led at the top by the English, let there be no doubt about that, but under that top level, the officials would continue to be French. It appeared that there were many, especially the old high nobility, who would never accept this new situation, and some of them left, losing their land, but avoiding the fine. Others, though, stayed grumpily, and no doubt went for the passive resistance approach, but by and large the city was there to be convinced. An example was the captain of the city himself, who swore allegiance to Henry as his new boss. Henry rode through the city in a style reminiscent of the scenes in London after Agincourt, sober, restrained, concentrating on the bookies. When he gave his orders for a new ducal palace, he made sure the occupants of the land to be taken to build it on would be paid. But Henry did reserve grudges for a chap called Robert de Livé, the vicar general of Rouen, the guy who'd done that excommunicating. Henry was pretty clear about his relationship with God, and it didn't include anything about excommunication, and Henry was not a man anymore to accept much in the way of negative press. Robert, as a result, spent the rest of his life in a dungeon. The fall of Rouen made a massive difference to the whole complexion of the war. Rouen was an enormous prize. Upper Normandy was now doomed and the road to Paris lay open. The conference at Milan. And so, for a while, the war turned diplomatic as the French sought to escape the consequences of their own disunity and Henry sought to get what he wanted without having to fight for it. The war went on in the background as Henry's captains spread throughout Normandy and indeed advanced towards Paris by capturing the crucial towns of Vernon and Mantes. But Henry held back from full steam ahead while he looked for a negotiated settlement. In fact, the diplomacy seemed more torturous, if possible, than the fighting was. Given that in Rouen, Henry was now directly fighting an army and town belonging to the Duke of Burgundy, Henry actually now turned to the Dauphin and his pals, the Armagnac, who were very keen to stress how they spoke for the king himself. For two painful weeks, every single claim was analysed and squabbled over, and the spirit of compromise lay shivering in the gutter. In fact, Henry was no slouch on the diplomatic front, but he knew he had a pretty strong hand and he wasn't giving it up for less than it was worth. Neither the lands included in the Treaty of Bretigny nor Normandy were negotiable. God had given Normandy to Henry. From the Dauphinist side, they'd lost control of Paris to Burgundy and they were desperate to get it back and reunite the kingdom. But eventually, the price Henry asked was too rich. They gave up and left. And so Henry turned to Burgundy. But here as well, while Rouen still stood, John the Fearless was not prepared to go as far as Henry demanded. At some point, a marriage between Henry and the daughter of the King of France, Catherine, came up. Henry was shown a picture of her, and appears to have been smitten. After the fall of Rouen, French desperation increased, and Henry's confidence with it. And so when John and Henry met for the supposedly ultimate round of the diplomatic dance in May 1419, the prospects looked good to Henry. He was firmly in the driving seat. He was poised on the river, ready to drive towards Paris. His alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor held good, which meant his allies encircled the French. And meanwhile, the Civil War was preying more than a little on the mind of John. So scared about assassination, was he, that he now lived at the tippy-top of a tall tower in Paris, with only one entrance. As the candles burned in his little room at the top of his tower, the people of Paris were convinced he was up there in league with the devil. The conference started all well enough, with Henry and John saying lovely things about each other and basically chumming it up for all they were worth. But in fact, the conditions were not yet right. Something more was needed to push John over the edge. Much as he'd love to make a deal, John simply couldn't give up half of France and remain a credible leader of the French. And so discussions ascended into detail, so obtuse as to arguing about how much the jewels of the young French wife of Richard II had been worth. By the end of it, the atmosphere between John and Henry had frosted somewhat. Here's Henry. Fair cousin, we wish you to know that we will have the king, or the daughter, or we will drive him and you out of this realm, which is unfriendly. And in reply, here's John. Sire, before you can drive my lord and myself out of this realm, I will make no doubt you will be heartily tired. Now, I know the effect John was trying to achieve, but to be honest, don't try to take over the kingdom because it'll be a real bother doesn't really do it for me, but maybe it did it for Henry. Really, the only thing that came out of the entire conference could well have been love or if not love, something like it. Henry was presented to the tall, 18-year-old Catherine of Valois, and it's really quite possible that he was genuinely bowled over. So far, Catherine had been attractive solely for her royal connection. No one's pretending that didn't remain the case, but there could well have been something else as well now. The failure of the conference irritated Henry. But worse, the flexible Duke John went straight to the Dauphin and in a blaze of publicity on the 7th of July, a new agreement between the Dauphinists and the Burgundians was announced and France was, again all smiles and all kissy-kissy, united in the face of the evil English invader. In fury, Henry launched a surprise attack and captured the town of Pontoise, frighteningly close to Paris. But it wasn't this that was to transform the situation. Something pretty dramatic was needed to push Burgundy into English arms. Something pretty dramatic was about to happen. On the bridge at Montereau. but we'll hear about the bridge at Montereux next time. For now, it is time for the Weekly Word. In the war after Agincourt, Henry quickly understood the importance to his enterprise of control of the Channel. It's quite likely that his first expedition in 1415, and the task of assembling 1,500 independent vessels in the same place at the same time, focused his mind wonderfully on the problem. And like Richard I he realised that he needed a quick way of getting over the channel. And so this episode's weekly word is going to be admiral, admirably enough. Ha ha! The origin of the words used for the embryonic but growing structure of naval command tends to come from a Latin root. So initially, ships had a very simple structure. There was a mass of seamen over here and one master over here, who would usually also be the steersman. The word master comes down from the equivalent Latin word magister. During the 13th century, the organisation on ship tended to simply follow organisation on land. So, retinues of indentured fighting men would be recruited under a captain as they were on land. And captain, as a word, came from the Latin root caput, or head. It's not until the 16th and 17th centuries that captain acquires its special naval meaning. The first officer underneath master that is mentioned is constable, a military function, though we don't know much more than that. Constable as a word appears written around twelve hundred and probably comes to us from the concept of a household officer, and therefore from the Latin comes stabuli, or count of the stables. That then becomes conestable in old French, and thence to English constable but admiral is different. The role first appears in the late 13th century and then grew throughout the 14th. It was Edward I that appointed the first admiral in 1297, a knight called William de Leybourne. It was initially very much an administrative role to gather a fleet together and it won't be until Elizabethan times that the current role and organisation begins to appear. From the start, they were divided into regions, the Northern Fleet, which ran from the Thames to Scotland, the Southern or Western Fleet, which ran from the Thames to Bristol. The Admiral might indeed also fight, but once he was at sea, he would no longer be the boss, and so the Admirals, especially in the early days, tended to be knights rather than peers of the realm. But through the 14th century, the status of the role began to rise, And we had the first earls taking such posts in 1337 under Edward III, the earls of Suffolk and Salisbury. Now, while we're focused on English naval arrangements, it's very clear that the Anglo-French wars from the 13th century drew in expertise from the more sophisticated world of the Mediterranean. So the French hired galleys from Genoa and Castile. Edward III hired Genoese galleys too, and our allies, Portugal, helped Henry V hold Harfleur which might explain why the word admiral is not a Latin word at all, but Arabic in origin. It seems the most likely source is from Amir or chief, and specifically from the title of Amir al-Ral, which means chief of the transport, from the fleet which worked the seas between North Africa and southern Spain. The adding of a D to Amir al-Ral seems to be confusion added by the Latin word admiralis or admirable and you see both spellings up to 1500, when finally Admiral takes over for good and all. Next week, everyone, I have my week off. And let me remind you of that exciting news. Next week, we have a guest episode from Brandon Hubener, author of the Maritime History Podcast. Brandon's going to tell you all about Henry's Navy and his flagship, the Gras Dieu. So, something to look forward to for you. Secondly, please do check in to the website or Facebook to feedback about the music and segment idea. Have your say, ladies and gents, or you'll be stuck with it. I have some donators to thank. Matthew, Thomas, Simon, Pierre, Michel. Thanks very much indeed. And absolutely finally, thanks very much for listening for all your comments on the website, iTunes, and so on. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight.